So last week, the videos did work. Yes, they yep. did. You saw Gavin Ortland uh, do kind of a stream of consciousness about baptismal regeneration, which I thought was a super great video. Uh, and then a discussion between Thabiti and uh, Ligon Duncan, and uh, they were talking about differences between traditions and similarities a little bit. Uh, I thought that was a good video just because you've got uh, kind of a Westminster person and then the Second London Baptist Confession person, and you see how even in that one spot where they diverge, and when you look at it from outside, you go, wow, this is a big difference. It's not impassable. Um, it's not where people can't find common ground. Uh, so what we've been talking about in the sacraments and the way that they ha are observed is the idea of the swinging pendulum and how when the Reformation began, uh, the pendulum was swung way, 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 way to the medieval sacerdotal side. What we would call sacerdotal meaning, I mean, almost magical properties to, to the sacraments. Uh, and there was a, a phrase that um, Gavin Hartland brought up in that video, ex operari operato. Does anyone remember what that meant? must be something operating outside of something. Like ex officio doesn't mean outside of the office, but by virtue of the office. In Greek, it would be outside of. Uh, in Latin, uh, this means by virtue of the, the act itself performed. So the power of these things is, is not in anything outside of them, but actually in the act itself. It's in, it's, it's in the the words, it's in the right, it's, it's there. So if you go and receive uh, the Lord's Supper, uh, you, by virtue of receiving it, just got some grace. And that's kind of the transactional way in which uh, the, the pre-Reformation church was, was viewing these things. So it's something that's being done by God. Which is a, a good way to view these things. Uh, but it's apart from faith, and it's automatic. And I think that's probably where the biggest problem comes in for the reformers and the biggest abuses in the church of that age are uh, automatic, apart from the faith of the believer. And, I mean, you can certainly see that in infant baptism itself, where this is happening apart from the faith of an infant, uh, and then we're expecting it to have such an effect on that person that they then kind of lean into faith later uh, as, they, as they grow older. Uh, so therefore, the power is in the words, the ritual, the rite, the elements of water, of bread and uh, wine, which have been uh, in the words of institution and the, the power of the church changed from one thing into another thing. And as a result, then, ultimately, this is required for salvation. So if you've not been baptized and you are lying there dying, they will say, call a priest, hurry up. And if it's too late, like you got hit by a, you kicked by a mule or something and you're bleeding out, then anyone will hurry up and baptize you because uh, that's required. The Lord's Supper uh, in the Eucharist is required continually uh, in order to get that grace to you. Uh, and it happens ex operari, ex operari operato, uh, just by the very 
transaction of it happening. Uh, and so to cut someone off from that becomes cutting them off from salvation, from, from the things they need to be saved. So coming back then from that large swing in the sacerdotal direction is um, in the middle, I would say, a better corrective that says let's revisit these elements and see what the scriptures say. But as with everything, there's going to wind up an opposite extreme. And as often happens, being on the left wing of the Reformation, kind of uh, even sometimes confused with the radical reformers, Baptists sometimes wind up in this other extreme. And that can be problematic as well. So instead of sacerdotal, you wind up with mere memorialism. I've brought up that term a number of times. It's actually the Zwinglian view, but a lot of Baptists have grabbed onto it. It means these things are, especially the Lord's Supper, merely a memorial. Now, we know there's a memorial aspect to the Lord's Supper, which we're going to talk about today, because Jesus said, do this. In memory of me. Right. So, yes, certainly it's supposed to call to your memory what you know Christ has done for you. Yes, but... The mirror is where the problem comes in. That it is not, but we're saying we want to get so far away from the automatic dispensing of grace through these things that we're going to say there is not really any real, they're not even means of grace anymore. Uh, and that is going to get us out of the territory of the early Baptist uh, confessions, the Orthodox Creed, the, the catechism we've been studying, uh, and into... Uh, what I would say, arguably, is a kind of humanistic view of the sacraments. Uh, and instead of ex operari operato, you get ex operari, you know how Baptists always love Latin, <laughs> operantis. And that means by virtue of the uh, agent's activity, the one doing it. And instead of it being in the, the bread and in the wine, uh, which are now imbued with this miraculous ability to grant me life, spiritually speaking, it's just in the one doing it. And, and at this point of view, we are not looking even at the clergy so much as the one being baptized. They're merely memorializing their salvation or receiving the Lord's Supper. They're merely by virtue of the person choosing to do this, saying, look at me, I'm a Christian, and it is merely a, a symbol, but not a sign and seal. It's a sign, maybe, but if it's a sign, it's not tied closely to that which it signifies. So it's a, I've, I've called the sacraments living pictures. On this extreme, it's not even living, it's just a picture. It's just like, okay, here's the thing we do, isn't it nice? Um... It's, in fact, I would write, it's something I do, not done by God. Something I am doing in the baptistry, in, at, in my pew. I think this is why you so often see, instead of, and this is what I grew up with, instead of a um, practice of communally confessing sins and the announcement of absolution, which is probably about the most biblical thing in the world, you get a minute for everyone to close their eyes and isolated and privatized run through their sins as quick as they can um, and then privately do this little thing. Uh, and I remember uh, 
growing up, if Aaron would, even when we were in college, if Aaron would like come to my church and then she joined a church when we were uh, engaged, we were in Grand Rapids, uh, if I was holding her hand when it was time for, for the Lord's Supper, I'd like let go of it. And part of it is probably because just, you know, she, we're engaged and, and, and uh, you're, you're, her flesh is ruling me now and I gotta, I gotta stop thinking about how beautiful she is and focus on God. But part of it also probably deep down was, uh-oh, no, 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 it's alone time with God kind of a thought. Very much uh, the other extreme, the pendulum now swinging to the other side. So in it though, ironically, even though I really needed to, to make sure that I did it right, there's no power. There's only the, the kind of symbolic power of someone watching someone else make a profession of faith or somebody remembering uh, what Christ did. But, I mean, we could remember with or without bread and the cup. We could remember with or without the water of baptism. Uh, and so then, instead of being required for salvation, it becomes optional. It becomes no big deal. You could, you know, it, it, it's a suggestion. It's not a command. I mean, regardless of the many commands throughout Scripture uh, to be baptized, regardless of the tying together, and this is where this finds its root scripturally, the tying together in the New Testament of uh, repent and be baptized, uh, using baptism as shorthand for regeneration or, or for salvation, this close connection. Um, what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized, washing away your sins. Uh, and, and it becomes instead, because it's something with very little uh, emphasis and no power in it, uh, and, and because instead of being by virtue of the act itself, it now becomes by virtue of just me doing it, uh, it's just something I could or couldn't do, because we recognize it's not going to stand in the way of my salvation. If I don't do it, it becomes optional. Um, and of course, both of these are equally problematic, equally unbiblical, I'd say equally foolish. Uh, they're, they're both missing the beauty and power of the sacraments. And, and the solution, of course, is never the middle, I don't think, uh, to split the difference, but rather the tension between um, these truths that seem to us to be hard to reconcile. Can you say one more time what each of those Latin phrases mean? Yeah, ex operari operato is uh, by virtue of the act performed, the act itself, and the other one is by virtue of the agent performing it. So we could, if we wanted to skip the Latin, which probably makes sense, uh, say this is, the, these things become, I say, I'm trying to avoid using pejorative language, like they become magical or something, but, and that's never been official doctrine of the church, but as the rubber meets the road is where these things play out. And ultimately, I think a lot of people think of the, the sacraments, and there's seven of them in the Roman Catholic tradition, as, as being kind of magical. Like, I can do whatever I want, and then I go tell the priest, and even though my heart isn't really confessing the sin, by virtue of me sitting in that thing and saying the words and him giving me some penance and me doing it and him declaring me free, boom, God has no choice but to forgive me because I used his system and I played his system. And that is the tendency in the human heart, I think, when on that side of the spectrum. On this side, then... actually says during, you know, one part of the service prior to communion, the mystery of faith. Mm -hmm. You know, actually uses the word yeah. mystery. Sure, and that's good, I think. But he also says of faith, right? So, so the, the coming together of what God is doing 
God's saving action and our faith is where these sacraments are. And so, I mean, if you read the Baltimore Catechism, the Roman Catholic doctrine on, on this stuff is, is fairly biblical. It's where the practice uh, has led that even in the medieval age, uh, where the reformers said we need to kind of nail some of these things down uh, and then nail some stuff to the church door, uh, that the problem comes in a lot of the time. So um, the, the doctrine then uh, is not going to be on either extreme pendulum swing. And I mean, you could say that for any doctrine, unless you're talking about loving your neighbor, right? You've got zero times over here and you've got 70 times seven over there and you want to go to that extreme. Yeah. Agent is the person still? It would be either, but I I said the tendency uh, because in mere memorialism is to even de-emphasize the the role of clergy in administering uh, an ordinance. Right. That's why that phrase surprises me. Yeah, I mean, it's just the only other option. Oh, it's okay. So, so you become the agent, is, is the oh, thing. Okay. You become the, the one really doing this. You went up and got baptized. It's not God doing it to you. It's not God at work. It's you doing a thing. Okay. Uh, or, or it's you choosing to take the Lord's Supper or, or whatever. Um, that is, I think, a summary of where we've been so far. And I really loved uh, the, that uh, Gavin Ortland video uh, bringing us kind of through uh, look at baptismal regeneration and how Baptists uh, are not lone wolfing it off on our own, but that there is uh, a great tradition in the the uh, church fathers and throughout church history uh, toward understanding sacraments the way that, that we do in a historic Baptist tradition, not as mere memorials, but as living pictures, as uh, sign and seal, etc., uh, any other thoughts on baptism before we move on to communion? Uh, okay, let's, let's uh, I mean, I can leave the pendulum up. <laughs> we've, we've again got uh, the, what, what became the medieval abuse and then perhaps the overcorrection of uh, at least today's evangelical church where, gosh, I've heard ordained ministers joke about the Lord's Supper in ways that I think would you joke about the actual wounds of Christ and his suffering on the cross? Because that's what you're doing. Um, we, we have, again, maybe the overcorrective. And what I love about the, the catechism is that uh, we, we don't have the overcorrective here. Now, in, I don't know that we actually, did we do anything with question 79? What is the duty of such who, who, as are rightly baptized? Why don't we just read the answer together and see if there's any... Uh, peanut gallery on it. <laughs> what is the duty of such as are rightly baptized? Answer. It is the duty of such as are rightly baptized to give up themselves to some particularly and orderly church of Jesus Christ that they may walk in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. I said particularly. It's to some particular and orderly church of Jesus Christ. So the main thing is you're getting baptized Connect to a church, so you're being baptized into a church, not into the ether, not into the church universal, but a particular congregation that is, by orderly they mean um, has the, uh, some sort of elder or leadership in place that's biblical, has some mechanism for uh, administering the ordinances correctly, and has probably some form of church discipline. Those would be the marks of the church in the, in the minds of these uh, divines. 
and then to try and follow Jesus' commands. So, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. It's, this is basic uh, Great Commission stuff that you are not supposed to just get. Again, if you get baptized because you think it's going to create some new um, super you, you're probably viewing things on the other extreme there, in a sacerdotal way, where this is going to, by virtue of the act itself, make me a new person. Rather, you've already been saved, washed of your sins, and are being made into a new creation when you enter the waters of baptism, and it's going to continue to be a fight, uh, a warring against the flesh, the world, the devil, and you are saying you're going to do that by submitting to, to baptism. All right. 80. What is the Lord's Supper? Answer. The Lord's Supper is an ordinance of the New Testament instituted by Jesus Christ, wherein by giving and receiving bread and wine, according to his appointment, his death is shown forth, and the worthy receivers are, not after a corporeal and carnal manner, but by faith, made partakers of his body and blood with all his benefits to their spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. That's quite a sentence. Uh, in it, you find, uh, I think, kind of some blocks against some of the overcorrections that, that were already arising in 1677 uh, when these words were written down. Uh, you, you have the worthy receivers here, which is a corrective of unworthy receivers uh, in the, uh, in, not, not in the state church at the time, but in some aspects and areas of, of the church, uh, you, you have even what we'd call paedo-communion. Infants been baptized, why wouldn't we give the infant communion? Uh, there was a bit of a controversy when R.C. Sproul's son, R.C. Sproul Jr., uh, for a time came out for that, uh, paedo-communion in a, a Presbyterian setting. Uh, he's now an Anabaptist, I'm sure he's rather embarrassed about all that. But like the idea of who is a right recipient of this. Well, it's someone who is saved, someone who is receiving, uh, and someone who has faith. The faith in the heart uh, is what makes this not just bread and just wine, but the body and blood of Christ. But if a worthy receiver partakes of this in a worthy, worthy manner, they are made partakers of the body and blood of Christ with all his benefits to their spiritual nourishment and growth and grace. So they're being fed spiritually. When you eat food, yeah, Calvin will sometimes eat like 106 tacos, and I'll be like, oh, this guy is uh, having a growth spurt. And then what happens is uh, two days ago, we discovered he's taller than his mom now. Uh, right? When we're fed... I say as tall as. <laughs> okay, yeah, you can say that, but it's right. inaccurate. <laughs> but, but the growth in grace is a result of the nourishment and all of it is because you are really feeding on, not corporeally or carnally, meaning not fleshly or the actual physical body of, but spiritually, this is the body and blood of Jesus. There is power in this. It's not a mere memorial. This is a, a, an answer that is very carefully composed to guard against mere memorialism. 
Uh, and I think that a lot of the flippancy you see in the church is because of a wide acceptance of the mere memorial view, especially in uh, Baptist circles uh, these days. And to me, I, I think that's just quite a shame. We have a rich tradition that understands these things for, for what they really are and the biblical understanding, and then instead we kind of strip them of their, their power. Uh, let's talk about the different views. Uh, the one that is being reformed and the one from which all of the reformers were distancing themselves was called transubstantiation. Can anyone give us a, a real brief synopsis of what transubstantiation is? When the blood and the, um, when the cup and the um, bread actually become the body and blood of Christ. Right, there's an actual transformation. the blood. And yeah, which is why if you go up to Immaculate Heart of Mary, there is a little addendum annex to the building there, and it's a, cha- a chapel for... Uh, perpetual adoration and inside of it you can walk right in and look at it uh, is a monstrance which is a a kind of ornate beautiful gold stand and in that is a a wafer of the consecrated bread which has become the body of jesus which is why this building exists for people to worship jesus who's on the altar there to then uh later consume christ uh, it's taking this very literally, which is funny because I think usually of like fundy Baptists who think, you know, they, they, they read what kind of tanks are being used in Russia today and say, okay, that must answer to Revelation 14.3 because blah, blah, that's reading things too literally. But this is a very literal reading of uh, this is my body. This is literally going to be, you're eating flesh and, and drinking blood, uh, and they don't say, in fact, this isn't just Roman Catholic. When we were uh, recently, we often will worship at a Lutheran church uh, when I'm uh, on a, a week off, and we have been at the a church, our go-to church, and I've read their, their little pamphlet about what they believe, and it said, we reject and condemn the view that a Christian only spiritually consumes Christ and not something more. Now, they don't believe in transubstantiation. They believe in consubstantiation. Trans, I mean, just think transform. It transforms from one thing to another. Uh, consubstantiation, con means with. Con means with. So we're, we're talking, Erin, her Lutheranism is showing, uh, she knows that it, the Lutheran formula for what's present in the elements is that Christ is there in, with, and under. In, with, and under the elements. So there's something mysterious, something very beautiful about it. I gladly, when I'm allowed, take communion at a Lutheran church where this is their understanding. Uh, Luther famously said that he and Calvin could, not this Calvin, but John Calvin, uh, could settle their differences on the Lord's Supper in half an hour if they were able to meet together and just hash it out. Uh, they're, They're not too far apart. Uh, and, and so at uh, the church where I was married and with the preschool, uh, Messiah Lutheran, where my, my in-laws are members yet, it says in their bulletin, anyone who believes pr- Christ is present in the sacrament is welcome to take the Lord's Supper here. I always do. Christ is present in the sacrament, for sure. Um, in, with, and under is not my go-to uh, formula, but it doesn't freak me out. Consubstantiation is not my 
uh, most accurate and articulate uh, description of the presence of Christ. I like to go toward our own language, like we partake of him spiritually, not corporeally, corporeally or carnally. Uh, or I like to go to uh, the, the words of Calvin. Uh, the historic Baptist view then, we, we see this as a memorial, certainly, but not a mere memorial, just as with, with baptism, it's not a mere symbol. Symbol, yes, but not mere symbol. Memorial, yes, but not mere memorial. The, the New Testament makes no sense if you read it with these things being mere symbols in the way that the 50 stars on the flag are symbols of the states. You know, that's not what we're dealing with. We're dealing with something with a far greater, weightier spiritual reality at play. So the particular Baptists in one of the earliest Baptist confessions of faith ever written say, and this is going to sound really familiar after reading that answer, worthy receivers outwardly partaking of the visible elements in this ordinance do then also inwardly, so outwardly partaking, do also inwardly by faith, really and indeed, yet not carnally or corporeally, but spiritually, receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death, the body and blood of Christ being then not carnally but spiritually present to the faith of believers in the ordinance as the elements themselves are to their outward senses. And even those words, strong as they are, I think, need extra oomph when dealing with people today because we have bifurcated our view of the world into spiritual and other. And so you might say to someone, uh, who's just lost a loved one. Hey, they're present with you. They're with you, right? Don't worry, they're with you. The wind blows in your face, that's Gus or whatever. Uh, I find that to be the coldest, like, don't say anything to me if you're going to say that. That's depressing. But that's kind of how we, we have this kind of ethereal spiritual reality instead of a concrete notion of a spiritual reality. And so when someone says, yes, yes, Jesus is present to my faith in this, I think to modern ears, it doesn't mean as much as it would have to those who first laid down and received these formulae in, in the confession and the catechism. That this is a real, I mean, just like your faith really is credited to you by the God of the universe as righteousness, so to your faith, Christ is really, really present, truly and really present, uh, and just, just not carnally. That's not the kind of uh, right we're dealing with in the New Testament church. It doesn't deal with the flesh, the body. In the Old Testament, right. How, what is the one-time entrance ordinance or sacrament of the Old Testament church? And yes, I'm calling the Old Testament community the church. That's a, a covenant issue. But what is it? It's circumcision. Happens to the flesh. Absolutely. And it happens after physical birth, right? Then... In the New Testament, it's baptism. Yes, it happens in your body actually gets wet, but there's a spiritual reality present that goes far beyond just your body getting wet, which happens hopefully frequently. But this time, you are going into the grave with Jesus. You're coming back out to new life, being raised again. It is a beautiful thing. It is inspiring to everyone watching. It is, uh, for you, something you can return to in your mind to bolster your faith. In the same way, then, this Old Testament meal, which, yes, had symbolic meaning, right? You're eating the bitter 
Uh, who went to the uh, Passover that we did at uh, Grace Bible Baptist? Oh, anyone who didn't miss out. Uh, uh, Cleggett Ward, the late Cleggett Ward, presided over it. We did it on a Monday Thursday, I think four years ago maybe. Um, and it was through this program where I th- some kind of messianic Jewish ministry, they, they help you go through to recognize how present Christ is, how all of this Holy Week stuff is foreshadowed in the old, in the old Passover. Uh, and then Jesus adds this firmly spiritual aspect to it when he says, okay, after dinner, this last cup, the cup called redemption is going to be, this is my blood. He doesn't say this symbolizes my blood. He doesn't say this should remind you of my blood. He says, this is my blood. It's a metaphor. It's not a statement of cold chemical fact, but it's also not a simile. It's, this is the, in, in that Jesus is a door, meaning you literally have to enter through him or you're not getting to God. You don't literally walk through him like a door, but you go through him as your mediator. This is my blood. This is a spiritual reality, and it answers to what would have been a, a more carnal reality in this, the signs and, and shadows that came before. Um, I want to go back. I missed a, a quote that I wanted to read about transubstantiation. Uh, supposing, says Archbishop Tillotson, the doctrine of transubstantiation had been delivered in Scripture in the very same words that it was delivered in the Council of Trent, by what clearer evidence could any man prove to me that such words were in the Bible? Then I can prove to him that bread and wine after consecration are bread and wine still. He could but appeal to my eyes to prove such words to be in the Bible, and with the same reason and justice might I appeal to several of his senses to prove to him that the bread and wine after consecration are bread and wine still. So there is also a kind of um, fideism in, in maybe transubstantiation. And by fideism, I mean a leap of faith counter to logic and counter to your senses, where somebody, you know, like... You, you go to a, a faith healer and they're like, hey, your, your uh, pain is gone from your knee. And you're like, but it still hurts. And they're like, hey, you're not believing hard enough. Do you trust me or do you trust your senses? Okay. Uh, in the same way, like, do you trust the fact that it still tastes? I mean, I don't know if anyone here knows what uh, flesh tastes like, human flesh. I hope not. Uh, but it still tastes like bread, not human flesh. And we all know what blood tastes like, because you've all pricked your finger and gone, oh, mm, and it tastes like metal sometimes, and it has a very distinct, that's not what, I mean, go into a church that's on that side of the pendulum, and it just tastes like really bad wine. So that's what it still is yet. And so there is perhaps a, and I think that, that speaks also to the superstition that is often present at the, you know, the human level, not at the, the doctrinal conciliar handed down level, but, but where people interact with it. Uh, but so, so the, the particular Baptist view is neither transubstantiation nor quite consubstantiation. The words of Calvin, I think, the formula of Calvin, which I uh, mention in, in my prayer almost every time we have the Lord's Supper, is that just as bread and drink nourish the body, so these holy elements do nourish our souls. So I eat this with my body and the bread nourishes me. The, the wine nourishes the individual taking it or the Welch's or whatever. Uh, and in the same way that that's happening physically, if I am a worthy partaker receiving it in faith, in faith, at the same time, Christ's body and blood are nourishing me 
spiritually. I am partaking of the the, uh, benefits of Jesus' own crucifixion, his death. They're spiritually now being fed to me, and I am strengthened by them. I do believe that how present you expect Christ to be can often determine how much of an effect it has on you. Let me say it that way. Uh, that someone who enters in expecting mere memorialism and just goes, well, yeah, Jesus died for me, is probably going to also be like, oh, that, that's uh, just going to rouse me appetite without bedding her back down, and now I'm thinking about what I'm going to have for lunch, not about Christ on the cross, right? Rather than someone who's expecting to encounter Christ in this solemn act is going to stop and, uh, with expectation in their spirit wait for him and is going to encounter him and is going to be strengthened by him because they're actually taking the time in faith and giving the attention via faith to receiving spiritually Jesus' bread, Jesus, the bread of heaven, his body, his blood. Uh, And I think that can be the difference between Someone who goes, yeah, once a month is fine, and I could do it once a quarter like the reform do, and someone who says, yeah, every chance I get, I want to have the Lord's Supper. Um, and you can pop in at any time with thoughts, uh, commentary, or questions, accusations of gross, heretical. When I grew up Catholic, I don't ever remember receiving wine at communion. They never really. Yeah, one thing that uh, Luther uh, was protesting in the in his as he began the Protestant Reformation was called communion in both kinds, uh, that everyone should receive both the bread and the cup, uh, rather than just a wafer on the tongue. And then he, as and again, uh, trying to be fair and and uh, trying to not paint the straw man. there is a sense in which that priest was your mediator taking the cup on your behalf, bringing you to the greater mediator of Christ through him to, to God the Father. So practically, why did they do that? Just because like the wine was more expensive? or like I've not really ever studied the history of it. I, I can tell you the uncharitable way that some Protestants would try to paint, uh, especially a medieval clergy, as, as very... Uh, given to wine and things, uh, not wanting to share it. I don't. I couldn't tell you. Um, I, I know that it it flows naturally out of a sacerdotal view uh, and a chur- uh, a view of the church that wants to continually put itself in the medieval world between the unwashed masses and the God that they were created to have a relationship with, so that you have to keep coming through us, and that continues to, and especially as you see the merging of civil, the sword, and spiritual power, right? Until you have, gosh, uh, a king who's also the head of the church in England. You have, even in the Reformation, you have... um, I mean, it's the same, really, reason why there are no Bibles in the pew. I would agree with that, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think... I actually yeah. had to speak at a funeral, and, you know, they provide you a book. Mm-hmm. And the book has the scripture in it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I go up, because I want to make sure that, you know, I've got my page, and it's like, oh, my page isn't here. 
And I go and you know find the person who was presiding, which was a nun, and I say, my page isn't in the book. And you know, she says, oh, oh better find you, know, you that page. And I said, it's okay, because just, you know, I mean, all I just need is the Bible. I could read it right out of the Bible. Let me just, and it's like, oh, I forgot. There aren't any Bibles in the pew. I'm sorry, sister. Could you maybe, you know, find my page somewhere? Because mm. there are literally no Bibles in the pews of the church. And I mean, maybe that's changed today, but this was like, I don't know, 10 years ago? Well, and it, it, there's a spectrum within, I mean, there's, there are evangelical Catholic churches. You'll see that even on the church sign in many places. There are, if you go on Amazon and look up Catholic Study Bible, it doesn't come up with, did you mean, uh, dot, dot, dot. No, there's a bunch of them. I mean, th there is a, a renewed emphasis on individual study of Scripture and knowledge of the Scripture. Uh, but I would say when you're dealing with the 16th century, the average, I mean, we're burning people for translating the Bible into the vernacular of the masses uh, we are... Despite the fact that the Greek was the vernacular of the masses at the time. And, and that the Latin Vulgate is called Vulgate because vulgar, meaning the language everyone speaks. So Jerome's already done this. Um, and we're using it, but, yeah. Well, and what is the collar about? That collar is... Uh, it, it comes from an Anglican tradition, but there used to be frilly collars that everyone wore. And now the... And, and the clergy said, well, we'll wear the little like stiffener part that holds the collar up, but not the frilly part because of, you know, the sense of wanting to be more modest and things. And then it becomes instead a symbol of kind of a higher authority and kind of these things flip on their heads. It doesn't come from, this is what we've decided our doctrine will be. It comes because everywhere the church is not made up of perfect people, but sinful people. And these, so this is why the reformers say uh, the church reforming, always reforming, Again, to go back to the Latin, Ecclesia Reformata, uh, Semper Reformanda. Uh, and I've been listening to uh, this, this podcast, the Catholic Talk Show podcast, because the guys are hilarious and the priest sounds like Archer. And uh, they bring that up several times as a slogan that they're, you know, we must always be reforming, uh, always getting closer and closer to the truth. And so I think we want to be charitable and say and give room for, for everyone to find their way to, toward the truth. But yeah, that, that in both kinds continues to be the practice uh, in some place that you receive only in one kind. Um, and I, I don't know why it would be the bread and not the wine other than maybe the uh, expense involved or something. I don't know. Um, since we're talking about the wine, and I know I've heard this explanation before, but why is it that we use Welch's? It goes back to uh, temperance it, movements. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, so it goes back to... So would Baptists have used wine before... Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, yeah, there was nothing but wine to wine. use. It was Dr. Welch who, and I think he might have been a Methodist. I remember doing a yeah, big so. bunch of research on this in order to do a little illustration, sermon illustration. I think it was a Methodist, and, and, and he... Welch just exists because somebody formulated it for the church right. so that we could have um, the Lord's Supper. And you know what? Thank God for it. Because I know people who are recovering alcoholics who are like, I, I could not take a sip of alcohol. And, I've, and, and there are churches across the spectrum that have that available. Um, I think it does... I, I don't like it. And I, I'm not a drinker. I'm not, not because of uh, 
principle that I think alcohol is, you know, the devil's drink because Jesus made wine out of water, but I just don't like it. But to me, there's not really a biblical mandate. It's just like King James only, right? You have, this is the only place you find the Bible is in the King James Version. Okay, before 1611, did you not have the Bible anywhere? And the answers that they give are absurd. In the same way, like, if the only right way to take the Lord's Supper is grape juice that's non-alcoholic, did nobody for like 1,800 years plus, 1,860 years or something, uh, not take the Lord's Supper? No one took it correctly? And, and the answer would be given, well, the wine that, and this the straight face, all of a sudden, fundamentalist preachers become like chemists and, and stuff. The wine that they used then was very watered down and it didn't have very high alcoholic con, uh, content. It was almost impossible to get drunk on it. And you say, okay, then why? why so much talk about getting yes! Then I get drunk on much wine. And they say, well, it says on much wine. You'd really, really, really have to, you know, drink intentionally. And, and it's hard work to get drunk in the, in the New Testament world. <laughs> That's why we have those little teeny tiny cups. <laughs> the teeny tiny cup. Also, you know, it, honestly, I'm a germaphobe, but give me a, a goblet of wine and a common cup, and I'll, uh, I'm, I'm there for that. Uh, and, you, you know, the age of COVID, yeah, I'd wait a little while, certainly, before you return to that. But even, you know, viruses and things, they die quickly in, in alcohol, and you wipe the, the rim of the thing. And better than that, I, I like, I got a buddy, uh, Joe Thorne, who's a Reformed Baptist pastor, and they make t-shirts that say, Anti-intention league. Yes. Baptist anti-intention league. <laughs> Sip it, don't dip it. I, um, I, I hate it when I go to. Oh, I love intention. It's intention. You like you dip the uh, into no, the. No, because it's a. I don't know. I feel like it. You're so used to having like this with these words, then this with these words, and then when you do them together, it just I don't know. It's I don't, weird. I'm a fan of of varying things a little bit, in order that you don't get into this automatic. Uh, wrote right in your mind. Uh, that's why I try at least every third time we have communion here to use a different form format or formula uh, for, for part of the, the service so that it doesn't become just like I, it goes in one ear and out the other because I've heard it so many times. Oh yeah, we were talking about both kinds. Thanks, Sean, for, for taking part a little bit. You're a good man. I would wonder if someone would look up for us 1 Corinthians 10, 16, and 17. The cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation—wait—is <laughs> it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So, I think there you have a, a, a like a defeater for the notion of mere memorialism. It's a participation. It is a partaking of the body and blood of Jesus. That's what it is. I think you also have uh, a shove away from the use of individual wafers and things, although I have been known occasionally to bring them if I'm going to a hospital or, uh, or something. Um, but the symbolism being this is the body, one loaf, and many different parts come in, and so there's one. So like baptism, which also one Lord, one faith, one baptism, is supposed to unite and debates about the mode and the, the meaning and the proper recipients have actually divided, sadly. The same thing can happen with the Lord's Supper. And I think we have to be careful to make sure that in this we are united, that Christians come together. 
that might bring us to the question of open communion, uh, because then you have people of different stripes and different congregations and different churches together on a Sunday morning here. If there's a visitor from anywhere else, I invite them, if they are a baptized believer, to the Lord's table. Um, and I think there's a beautiful symbolism in that. There's also an argument to be made, I think, for closed communion or, or private communion, meaning uh, or, or they, uh, they like close communion without the D. I don't, that's newish. I don't know why they like that. Um, but if you're not part of this congregation in good standing, please don't come forward for the sacrament because we don't know you and we might be feeding you damnation. Uh, and so that, that I think emphasizes belong to your own congregation where they know you and where you're walking together and where, um, they can know whether or not you're under church discipline or whether, you know, what's going on with you. I, I just give the warning uh, and say, you know, if you want to come up and unworthily partake, we warn you against it, but we can't, you know, pry it out of your mouth. Just don't do it. So you talked about, you know, um, you know partaking of the one bread. Mm-hmm. So um, when we, when the deacons make the bread, I mean, we make it out of, you know, one batch, if yeah. you will. But we purposely make a little loaf for you that's up on the communion table. Well, it, it, as opposed to breaking yeah. off a piece that is of the part that we all partake. I think that that's good and fitting because you know how, like, I'm up on a on, on the chancel on a platform. I'm a, I don't want to say better, but definitely above you all <laughs> spiritually. Um, yeah, but when we took regular communion and did it normally, you still took a small piece from. The plate, you didn't take it off of. Yeah, when we get back to that, I will. Yeah, I'll take. A, I break that because that. I think that's there for the symbolism. You know, I, I hold it up and I break it, um, and there's uh, watching the, the the loaf get torn asunder and remembering this is the you know Jesus body broken for us is a beautiful pictorial thing. Uh, when it comes time to and. I think until maybe three months ago, even with the, the kind of COVID protocol way we've been doing it, somebody would put a little piece that had been cut off the same loaf up there for me. I'd like to get, probably get back to that. And, and uh, it's kind of cool to have the, the, the chalice and drink out of that. I, the last time I did it, I was like, there is a clergy laity distinction in this that I don't like. That it's almost like, the, I mean, I'm not denying anybody the cup, but they don't get the cup. You get the cup. And I get the cup. Um, I should be drinking out of the same thing everyone else is drinking out of because, you know, I'm not doing anything magical up here. And I think that's also why it's very important to have deacons participate in it. And they're saying the prayers, not just the clergy guy in the robe saying the prayer, which then transforms this into something else. I yeah. think, uh, I guess that's probably a, a, a something, a point in uh, the intinction corner because you are putting it all in the same cup. Yeah. Rather than each having an individual little cup. And I and at my parents' church, so he does the, they do always with like pita bread. And so that's the bread that he'll tear, but he actually, every single piece that people take is torn off of that mm-hmm. piece. So it's not like all cut up to begin with. It's actually torn as they're giving it because they don't do it all at the same, people come up. So he has a little more time, I think. Oh, to, so he tears to, something. He tears everything. Yeah. yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. That, I like that. Maybe, but it's different coming up, and you could see. But them. then, then the problem is not everybody's taking at the same time. You're taking as you get up there, right? And so right. there's like so, there's right. trade-offs. 
And Cindy, it wouldn't fly here, or at least it wouldn't have uh, 10 years ago. It would be quote-unquote too Catholic with some people. There was a week when uh, I was on vacation and I got a call and someone said, we are out of the little tiny cups. What do we do? What do we do? And it was probably 2006. I mean, I hadn't been here that long. And I said, no big deal. Why don't you just have have it by intention? Uh, Have cut long pieces so that people can keep their grubby fingers out and just have them dip it in. And... uh, uh, I got back the next week. I said, how'd that go? And I don't remember who, but one of the deacons said, oh, we just decided to order more cups and wait and do it late because it would have been too Catholic. And I'm like, okay, I think we sometimes confuse. Um, it's not Catholic at all. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was told one time when I wore a cross, you're trying to look like a priest? I'm like, a cross is Catholic now? Where are we going? So, you know, there, there's a, I think this, this pendulum is always at work and we're always going to see it at work. So uh, the the... Intention, uh, that, that, I mean, I think the real argument against it is that it's an innovation. It's not how Jesus did it. It's not how we assume they did it in Acts. It's, a, it's an innovation. Um, so it shouldn't be the main thing. Would they have passed that same cup around, or would they all have had their own? It says, Jesus, when he had blessed it, shared it with his disciples. Right. I don't think they're all taking a tug off of it, but he's sharing it into a smaller cup. But who knows? I was probably... I don't know why they wouldn't all take a tug off of it. They wouldn't have had the same... Hang-ups, I don't think about that. It just depends on how it grew out of the, bat, the, the Passover practice. Yeah. Um, they weren't inventing something new. They weren't reinventing yeah. the wheel. They were, Jesus was incorporating and infusing with new meaning something that already existed. I'm trying to decide if I want to just abandon some of this stuff or try well, to force 10, it into the discussion. Um, oh, well then let's, you know what, I'll, I'll yeah. get it all worked out for next time. And there we go. It would have been more fitting if this was la- if I'd have been here last week when we covered we would have covered this and then we would have said all right let's go have the Lord's supper now but uh, uh, I assume that you did have it last time there were enough cups. Yeah. <laughs> Pastor John Reed uh, administered the the Lord's supper and didn't say anything weird he didn't. He did not say you had to be baptized. Okay, I'm. I was kind of. Well, I well I actually talked to him beforehand and told him that you know that actually was. Zach's practice. He said you had to be a believer in Jesus Christ, but he didn't say anything about Jesus. But whatever. Why would someone who is disobeying Christ on the one want to obey him on the other? I don't understand that. But he also didn't seem like he was familiar with the confession. I'm sure that he wasn't. Probably at his uh, church in Clark Lake, they took a moment to everybody individually confess their own sins. Which I think if you went to most American Baptist churches, that'd be the majority practice. Interesting. I think that we did both. I don't know. I, I couldn't. Know. Maybe I'm, I'm mistaken that with like prayers where you, you would say something in your mind or out loud. Because you wouldn't say your sins out loud. <laughs> you know what? Why don't, we, why don't we get like that youth group popcorn prayer practice going next time? And I'll be like, just shout out your worst sin. Anybody. <laughs> wow.